بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والصلاة والسلام على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم تسليما كثيرا ولا حول ولا قوة إلا بالله العلي العظيم اللهم لا علم لنا إلا ما علمتنا إنك أنت الحكيم العليم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا علما وقرب زدنا علما اللهم افتح علينا حكمتك وانشر علينا رحمتك يا أثن الجلال والإكرام وصل لهم على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله الكرام ولا حول ولا قوة إلا بالله العلي العظيم الحمد لله أي إن شاء الله what I want to talk about today is the concept of isnad in our tradition why we call this program Living Links and some of the addressing some of the problems that ha- have arisen in the uh, in the global Muslim scene because of the breakdown of a tradition that worked actually uh, relatively well. It had its problems, but uh, it did work for a long, long time. And attempting to contribute to the revival of that tradition. I mean, we're not the only ones trying to do this. There are others in other places. So the first thing, one of the one of the most uh, important aspects of the Islamic tradition is the chains of authority. In fact, uh, there there is a, a reference in the New Testament when the rabbis surround uh, Jesus, السلام, and they ask him, on whose authority are you speaking? And that comes out of the rabbinical tradition where rabbis did not speak for themselves, but they spoke from an oral tradition, because they also have an oral tradition. So they would speak on the authority of Rabbi Gamayel or Rabbi Samoel or one of the rabbis, and that would uh, buttress whatever they were saying. And obviously Jesus, Adesadam, was a prophet, so he speaks with direct authority. He, there's no, there's no, even though he's in a, a chain of prophets who are teaching the same thing, their source is the same source. So they, they get the teaching directly. They don't get it through transmission of human beings. They get it directly as revelation through either angelic or a direct revelation uh, from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the, the problem of authority in our religion is a problem. It's a problem in every religion. Uh, every religion grapples with who has authority, what substantiates authority, where does authority come from? What's the nature of authority? Even the legitimation in government is also a major problem. Like one of the things that we're going through right now in some parts of the world is this idea of whether or not governments are legitimate or have legitimacy because they don't, for instance, reflect the voice of the people. In fact, there's a recent book written in Morocco by a Moroccan scholar arguing that the wilaya which is government authority, is actually niaba. It's a type of representation. And he doesn't say niaba from God. He says niaba from the people, that the government represents the people, which is a radical departure from how earlier Muslim peoples would have viewed it. 
um, they would have viewed it in a very different way. Um, but that shows you uh, the, the impact, even on Islamic scholarship, of Western political theory, because we also have within our epistemology, in other words, how we substantiate things through knowledge processes, we actually have within our epistemology a, a political tradition that many modern Muslims would consider simply just antiquated. They, they would see no value in it. They would say it was written for another time, another place. Now, certain aspects of that tradition undoubtedly were written for another time and place. But the idea somehow that the ancients have nothing to tell us about the human condition and about human problems is an absurdity. Uh, anybody who spent any time in classical texts knows how relevant a good deal of what they are talking about. I want, uh, don't, yeah, sit up, like, please, when you're in the, sit up if you can, yeah. So it's important that you, you understand that this problem is not just a problem of religion. It's a problem in many, many different fields. Um, in Egypt right now, who has authority? Is it Sisi or is it Morsi? And this is a problem. And the, and the scholars have taken different sides. Some of the scholars are saying this is what's called the hukum al-mutaghallib. This is what our traditional books say about the situation. Other ones say that doesn't apply anymore. So even the scholars are split. Now one of the problems inherent in that is that it becomes very confusing for people. Because when you have scholars radically differing, and you're looking for them for guidance, who do you follow? So who has authority? Because it has, it has spiritual implications, it has political implications, it has economic implications. We have, for instance, if you're following it at all, but Neil Ferguson, who's a historian of econo economics, and Krugman, who's the Nobel Prize winner right now, are having their little blog battle. Uh, about economic theories, right? So do we follow a Keynesian model or should we follow uh, uh, an Austrian model or a monetarist model? So even within economics, who has authority? Who's speaking with authority? These are all ikhtirafat. These are the differences of opinion that arise from the human condition because people look at things from different perspectives. So, in light of all that confusion, if you can say that, in light of all that confusion, um, how does a religion assert itself authoritatively when the purpose of religion is actually to unite people and not to separate them? In other words, if you have a religion where all of the people are differing about what that religion is, how is that going to bring them together? They're going to end up fighting each other, disputing over it, creating their own sects. You can see, for instance, in this city, there are probably hundreds, if not at least uh, dozens of churches of different denominations. And this is what happened to Christianity. It's split up. You will see within 
this, on this hill, many different types of Christianity are being taught in these colleges. Judaism, you can go to a Reformed synagogue. You can go to synagogues in Judaism where it's not considered necessary to believe in Yahweh. You don't have to believe in God. You can still go to the synagogue and be part of a, a Jewish religious community and not believe in God. And, and I learned that from being in an interfaith dialogue with a rabbi who didn't believe in God. Because I said, well, we have the commonality of God. He said, no, we don't. I don't believe in God. And it really shocked me, but I, you know, I went back and I did my research and found out, indeed, that there are reformed versions of Judaism that do not stipulate a belief in God, that it's more of an ethnic, cultural, binding tradition, religio. So it's purely on a horizontal plane. There's no vertical reality to the religion anymore. So you can, you can find all these differences. Now within the Islamic tradition, you can be a progressive Muslim. You can be a transgender Muslim. There's all these different types of Islam out there. And this is part of the fragmentation of the time we're living in. And so the question about authority, how did Muslims deal with this? Because again, one of the things that we can learn from the ancients is that they went through the same things that we're going through. They had authority problems in the early part of Islam. They went through their own types of disintegration. They went through their sectarianism, their schisms. Right? The Sunni-Shia split is a schismatic split. And the Prophet said that you will split. He told us that. It's, 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 it's human nature. But then he said, but one group is guided. So everybody, if they're all claiming that, how is that claim substantiated? Because the Ismailis claim that they have the Baltani authority, and this is what gives them the truth. The Shia claim that they have the Al-Bayt authority of the unbroken chain of the 12 impeccable imams that can't make mistakes. Within the, uh, the Alawi or the Nusayri, also a sect, a radical sect of uh, the Shia tradition, claims that they have uh, a direct line to Ali, who's uh, an incarnate, like the Logos, like Jesus. So you have all these different competing claims. What substantiates them? What legitimates them? What enables us to discern haq from batil, the furqan? What is that? And somebody was talking about assumptions earlier. It's a problem because we assume many things. Most people were simply born in a place and they take on the historical, cultural nature of that place they were born. One philosopher terms them historical products. They're products of their historicity. And so they're trapped in uh, a religious, ethical, social, economic situation that determines everything that they're going to think about those things. And so we live in a time where people have prepackaged ideas that they, the, and, and the really the great leisure domain of the time is to make people think that these are their own ideas, that they came up with them themselves, that this is some kind of self-actualization, that I, I, I believe these things and, and I came to these conclusions myself. Everything's relative. You can trace that, that there's a senad with that idea. That has a lineage, and you are in a chain of transmission. 
when you make that statement. And we can trace that chain and see who the first people that said it were. If you say there's no God, there's also a chain of atheists. You're in a chain, you're in an isnad. Whatever position you take that you think is uniquely your own or original, you are in a chain of transmission. Now, from our perspective, and, I, and I'm talking about from believers, whether you're Christian or uh, other traditions, because almost all these religious traditions do believe in, uh, in a dark realm, those chains either go back to demonic sources or they go back to angelic sources. So either Iblis is at the end of the Hadathani Marx on Hegel, and, right? and <laughs> you go back and then Iblis was the first Rawi in the chain. And so that's your chain. It goes back to Iblis. So you're a transmitter of narrations from Iblis. He's your source. But people don't recognize that. Or you go back to Hadathani An Fulan, An Fulan, An Fulan, An Isa, Ibn Mari, An Jibril, right? Or from God. So these are the, these are the, these are the basic, the two, Fariqun Fil Jannah wa Fariqun Fil Sa'ir. Those are the two chains. You're in one or the other. There's no other chain in dunya. You're either in the chain of Iblis's transmission or you're in the chain of prophetic transmission. Now, Iblis. People forget, you see, that the occult, people don't want to deal with the occult. The occult is everywhere. You're dealing with occultic phenomena everywhere. There are occultic elements in the way San Francisco was designed architecturally. There's a reason why Pier 33 is the central pier in San Francisco. There's a reason why there's a pyramid embodied in the actual street structure of San Francisco. Washington, D.C. is designed in an occultic uh, design. Why? Because there are people that have religious beliefs, spiritual beliefs, and those spiritual beliefs impinge the way they see the world, the way they act upon the world. All, all you have to look up is John Parsons, one of the most important people in uh, rocket science, developed a type of fuel that enabled the the whole telecommunications period, and he was an open worshiper of whatever you want to call that dark force. He was open about it. It's on his Wikipedia site, and you can, there's books about it. So you have scientists that are in the occult that are at the highest levels. You have people in government at the highest levels that are in occultic rituals. I mean, this is part of the world. The Christians have a, a saying from Paul that our battle is not of the flesh and the blood, but it's with the principalities of darkness. And so if you want to know who's behind Syria, it's not the Alawiyah, it's not the Iblis is behind that situation. These are dark forces working to destroy people's homes, to destroy their lives, to destroy their livelihood to make them suffer, to put them into a state of despair, ablasa, to make them question God. Where's God? How could there be a God? How could he let little children suffer like this? These are the questions that Iblis always poses. 
And people in weakened states, when their faith is low, when they're suffering, they will succumb to those demonic insinuations. This is called telbisu iblis, the dupery of the devil. Telbisu iblis. So the isnad is the way in which a normative, and if you study academic religion, they talk about descriptive and normative religion. There is a modern argument that many, many people in religious studies uh, would like to, to put forward or do put forward, and many, many religious studies programs are rife with this concept, that there is no such thing as normative religion. There is only descriptive religion. That normative religion is a fantasy. That whatever the religion might say about itself, it's never that. If you, if you chip away at the formica of a South Asian Muslim, you will hit the bedrock of Hinduism. Hinduism has never left the subcontinent. And we'll, we have scholars in the 19th century that wrote all the Hindu influences on the Muslim culture in South Asia. If you go to Morocco, you will find pre-Islamic pagan rituals still being practiced within Moroccan Islam. So they will argue that, is, that any religion that ever claims to take root in reality, it's just another patch on this quilt of human behavior. And so if you look at Christ Christianity, they celebrate Christmas here on December 25th. That was the Roman sun god's birthday. Mithra. They have Christmas trees, Noel Tide. What does snow have to do with Palestine? <laughs> what does Santa Claus have to do with Palestine? Right? But, but this, is, this is basically how religion manifests in human societies. It manifests with a lot of different streams flowing in, tributaries that are enlarging the river of religion. The same is true in, if you go Tibetan Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism is, 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 there's a Tibetan mask on Bon animism, which is the previous religion that was in Tibet before the Buddhists got there. It's filled with, with uh, animistic pre-Buddhist rituals and beliefs. And so Islam is no different. You will find many, many uh, beliefs that came into Islam or were already in the previous cultures. The Muslims were heavily influenced by Hellenistic tradition. The Greeks had a massive impact on the Muslims. I mean, they, they come up against the Greeks. The Arabs say, That wisdom came down on three, on the intellects of the, the Greeks, on the hands of the Chinese, because they were great uh, manufacturers and on the tongues of the Arabs. But the, the Greeks had a huge impact on the Muslims. So normative Islam is, is, would be what the religion actually says about itself. What, what does the religion say about itself? What is it? How do we know what Islam is? Is Islam simply the hijab? You see, if you go from, if you go to, now you have, for instance, in Syria, you have a, a hijab, like it's a raincoat. There's nothing traditional about that. It's a European coat that however that came in, I mean, there was, must have been some first woman that started that, right? 
But that is not a traditional dress. If you want to see a traditional chamois dress, you have to go to Palestinian villages or Syrian villages where they wear those traditional... They used to have their own little... It would tell you knew what village they were from based on the patterns on the, the hijab. Right? So you would know where they were from. But now you have, uh, for instance, the, the chador, which is basically uh, the Iranian... Uh, version of the hijab, which probably is close to what uh, some of the early Muslim women were wearing, but it wasn't black. I mean, we know that black was actually, they couldn't sell the black hijabs in the third century in Medina, and they actually, Darimi had to write some lines of poetry for this poor Iraqi uh, hijab merchant who brought all this black cloth and none of the women wanted it. And so he wrote this thing about how tempting black was on women and how good it made them look. And suddenly they were selling out of the black hijabs, right? Early marketing. But the point is, is that Muslim women, this idea that black somehow is the... Black is a mourning uh, dress. It's what people wear, like, for funerals and things like that, right? Black. But this idea in Tunisia, in Morocco, women wore white and wear black. If you go to West Africa, women have always worn colorful uh, garments. In Mauritania, they wore uh, uh, what they call nil, right, which was a blue, and it actually made them blue. And the men wore the blue turbans from it, so they, they're called the blue men, the zurk, because they would turn blue from it. But the women actually thought it was attractive. Their whole skin got dyed blue. So you see these Mauritanian women, they look blue. They don't wear that anymore. Now they wear the, the colorful melhafa which was introduced by merchants. So those change. But does the hijab change? Do the essential demarcations of the hijab change? That's normative Islam. Descriptive Islam is how they choose to wear that hijab. But normative Islam is what tells you what the hijab is. All right? that, there's a big difference between the two. Now, the way that our scholars when in the very early period of Islam, the Qur'an was clear. And the Qur'an, our Usuri scholars differentiate between mutawatir and ahad. Mutawatir is factual. It's just simply historical. It's an, a historical account of something. Because, and the point between mutawatir is so many people have seen it. So many people have transmitted it. They have so many multiple sources that it could not be possible that they could have conspired to make it up. So we know, for instance, in 1776, if you want to use that dating, if you want to use another dating, I mean, I once saw a Native American argue with Adler, and Adler said, well, surely we can agree on historical facts. And he said, like what? And he said that America was discovered by Columbus in 1492. Big mistake to say to a Native American. And he just threw it back. He said, I don't accept that fact. First of all, 1492 is not a Native American dating. So I don't accept the date. Second of all, we, we weren't discovered. We knew we were here. Right? <laughs> so, but generally, in 1776, all of us can agree, unless we have a nutcase in the audience, all of us can agree that a group of people in, in Philadelphia got together and they signed this thing called the Declaration of Independence. Right? We can all agree on that. Nobody's going to disagree about that. That is mutawatir. 
So if you say, no, it was actually 1775, it was a scribe's mistake, okay, prove it. You can make a historical case for that. There's a PhD in India who's a Hindu who's arguing that the Taj Mahal was built by Hindus, not by Muslims. And the Muslims just claimed it later. And so he's got a PhD, he's got a website, you can go on the website, but as far as everybody's concerned, he's a nutcase. PhD notwithstanding. Because there are plenty of nutcases with PhDs. So if you go against Mutawatir, you're just simply denying reality, which is one of the reasons I wrote an article called How the Holocaust Undermines Islam. And the point of that, denial of the Holocaust undermines Islam. The point of that, and I asked uh, Dr. Khalid Blankenship, who I trust, as, as a really, really reputable historian who also knows Islamic tradition, did he think the Holocaust was mutawatir? And he said, yes, I would consider it mutawatir. So for me, that's enough to say that if you're denying that, you're undermining our tradition. Because what you're saying is mutawatir evidence is not proof of something. So that is what... Now, all of the Qur'an is mutawatir in terms of its source. In terms of its meaning, right? Because you have qat'iyatun nas and dhaniyatun nas. The qat'iyah is that it's absolutely sound in its source. That's mutawatir. But the meaning of the text, if all of the ulama agreed on it, and we had hadith that the Prophet said, this is what it means, then we would have to say, this is the meaning of the text. But... If there isn't that agreement, then it becomes vaniya. It's probable, the meaning. But the meaning is exhausted linguistically. And this is why our scholars exhausted the meaning possibilities of language. No human civilization in history, and, and, and I would call as my authority and appeal to authority, is a legitimate form of argument. It's the weakest, according to scholastics. But it is a legitimate form of argumentation to appeal to authority. Franz Rosenthal, one of the great Jewish Orientalists, wrote a book called Knowledge Triumphant. And in that book he argues that no civilization in human history was more committed and had as its central theme and purpose the acquisition, preservation, development, and transmission of knowledge. That this is the Islamic civilization. It was about knowledge. And so it is not fortuitous that the Qur'an begins with iqra. It is not fortuitous that the Prophet ﷺ said, إِنَّمَا بُعِثُ muallima." I was only sent to teach knowledge, muallima, to alama ilman. The mustar is knowledge. I was sent to teach knowledge. All of these things are at the core of, of what the meaning and purpose of Islam is as a religion. It is about knowledge. And the highest knowledge is, is ma'rifah. So it has, it has levels. We call these maratib al-ilm, the degrees of knowledge. This civilization largely argues that knowledge is empirical. That's only one of three forms of knowledge that our civilization recognizes because we have empirical knowledge, we have rational knowledge, but we have revealed knowledge. In this civilization, somebody like Dawkins, who will concede to rationalism somewhat, but his central argument is that knowledge is empirical. It is what we can feel, sense, taste, touch. 
what we can deduce rationally from empirical evidence. So they only believe in deductive, inductive reasoning. They don't allow for deductive reasoning. They don't believe in universal truths that we can argue from. They only believe in probabilistic empirical truths, and that knowledge changes as time progresses and we discover new things. When the black swan is discovered in Australia, all of the English uh, naturalists were forced to concede that, that swan, by definition, is not white. There can be a black swan. It's called the black swan problem in logic, in inductive reasoning. So the, the, the Muslims, because that central theme was knowledge, they set out to, to master the language skills, the language arts, in order for them to understand what the possible meanings of revelation are. And then they divided meaning into what they called isharat, which are, these are like, isharat are indications as opposed to significations. So they differenti differentiated between significations, what the ma'ani were, which are the vahira, the outward meanings, and what the inward spiritual meanings were. If they went into the inward spiritual meaning entirely, dismissing the outward meanings, they were, they were called bataniya, esoteris. If they went to the outward meaning, denying the inward meaning, they were exoteris. They were called harfiya or vahiriya, people that deny that meanings are more than just the apparent meaning, the vahir, vahirun nas. There's other meanings, tambihun nas. They're isharat that come. So, because they exhausted these language skills, Arabic has, the Quran has limited significations in terms of what we can understand when Allah says, Ya ayyuhalladina amanu attaqullaha haqqa tuqatihi. There are limitations to the outward meanings that we as human beings that use language to communicate can understand from that. The inward indications, the isharat, inexhaustible. You can speak about them until the day of judgment. But the outward significations, they've been exhausted merely by the meanings of those words that have been uh, collated in all these massive, incredible dictionary works that our scholars did. I mean, the Muslims, they created dictionary science. There's no dictionaries before Islam. The Hebrews didn't have dictionaries for, for Hebrew. They learned that from the Muslims. The Chinese had very, very esoteric dictionaries that weren't really practical in, 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 in any sense of the modern idea of a dictionary. But the Muslims, from, right from the get-go, they established what words meant and continue to develop that. So we know every word in the Qur'an, we know what it means, unless Allah hid that from us, like Alif Lam Mim. Are those words, are they letters? What we do know from that is, unlike Western linguists who will argue in linguistics that phonemes have no meaning, that language is actually based on meaninglessness, what the Qur'an is refuting there is, no, it's meaning all the way down. The letter has meaning. The sound has meaning. It's meaning all the way down. This is about meaning. And we are interpreters of meaning. It's our nature to interpret. We're constantly listening 
and we're interpreting and we're understanding. That's human nature. We do this constantly. And language is the great gift. So the Quran, and you know, we have these people, Hagarites, and I mean, most of this, this idea has been completely dismissed, even in Orientalist uh, literature. But you will have articles in the Atlantic Monthly, not that long ago, a few years back, arguing, oh, the Muslims are in a big shock. They've discovered Quranic manuscripts that don't jibe with the Quran that they have. So they're going to have to wake up to the fact that Islam has the same challenges that Christianity went through when they discovered that they had different recensions of their book. So they would love for that to be true. But the reality of it is we have from Indonesia to California, from the furthest east to the furthest west, and everything in between, and every sect of Islam, whether it's the Ismailis, whether it's the Yemeni uh, Yazidis uh, or Zaydis, whether it's the, the Ibadiyya of Oman, whether it's the Hanafis, the Shafi'is, the Manikis, the Hanbadis of the Sunnis, whether it's the Zahiris of Andalusia when they were there, whether it's the Shia, Ithna Ashariya, uh, the eight, the eighters, the seveners, the twelvers, the fivers, all of the Shia groups, every single one of the Muslims reads the same Quran. None of them differentiate on the Quran. Not one. Why? What, how is that possible? How is that possible? If, if the Bible has all these different recensions that the, even the Protestants and the Catholics don't agree on the books in the Bible, they don't know how the Greek was pronounced in some cases. They don't have a science of phonetics. We have tajweed. If you go from Indonesia, if you take an Indonesian Qari and you take a Qari who learned tajweed in California, they will recite the Quran exactly the same way. They might have difference in like the color of the hijab, the tone, the maqam, those aspects, but the idgham will be the same, the idhar will be the same, the ikhfa will be the same, the ghunna will be the same, the mudud will be the same, the, the counts on the mudud, if you have an expert, he'll determine whether their counts are right or wrong. And we're all in agreement on that. The 17 points of, of, of articulation, makharij al-huruf, are the same. The sifat, you will find very, very slight uh, differences about a few letters and the sifat of the letters amongst the qurra. Very few differences. But generally, they don't change the meaning and, and they're accepted. There's some debates about jim and the sifat of the jim, things like that. Essentially the same. How did that happen? Because if you take the Senate all the way back, you will see the same reciters from the Sahaba. All of the Quran comes from the same few men. There's no difference. And they got it from the same source. That is a proof of the isnat right there. Because there's no way you can tell me. If you go to Watford, you know Watford in England? It's actually Watford. Right? But they say Watford. Why? Because they don't pronounce the T. If you go to Australia, G'day, mate. You know, the G'day, good day. Right? They, that's how they say it. Right? G'day. Right? If you go, if you, in California, if you want a glass of water, you don't say water. You say, I like some water. Right? Because we turn it into a, a, the ta into a da. Right? These are all differences of attributes of the way language, elocution, the way we speak, differs based on where you're from. If you speak, the reason comedians have field days with foreign accents is because people from other languages, when they speak English, if they have absorbed that language, 
and they didn't learn English early enough, they will speak it in a very similar way. So Arabs will say for paradise, they'll say paradise, paradise. And they put those heavy accents. They can't help it because what they're doing is they're articulating English the way they would speak Arabic. Brother. Right? It's, it's not brother. It's brother. Right? Or, you know, there's other ways. Brother. Bro. Right? These are all different ways people speak. Why is it, if you have all these linguistic differences in one group of people, you go down south and they speak English in a different way. If you go to Texas, they, they speak English differently than the way we speak. They make fun of us. And we make fun of them. Right? That, that's, that, and that's in one country. We speak English differently. In fact, the English would argue we don't speak English at all. Right? It's their language. Garage. Right? They say garage. Right? I mean, they have all these different... Tomato. Tomato. They don't say tomato. Some people say tomato. <laughs> right? It's the way people talk. They used to teach elocution. So, and you can actually still go to these courses, like people with New York accents, with a heavy New York accent. Because if you see a lawyer that speaks with a New York accent... You just you think of all those mafia films that you've seen and you just don't want that guy representing you because he sounds like a, a, some kind of wise guy on some Brooklyn street corner trying to muscle some money from some poor grocer, right? Isn't that what happens? You know, poor German people, if you speak... People that grew up with World War II film, they just hear that Nazi... Right? When they hear a German accent in English. It's just the way it is. Right? So all of these differences, all of these, the only way that you get to any kind of sound is through this idea of a proper way to speak. Right? Now, proper doesn't mean, again, it's like the hijab. You can wear it a lot of different ways, but if I pronounce water... Um, you know, way, wafer, it's a different word. So we have to have some limitations on how it's pronounced, right? Or else we lose the ability to communicate. This is the argument that I would make for the ISNAD, that it, what it was, it came into existence in order to prevent things coming into this religion that were not of this religion, so the Qur'an is mutawatir, the meanings we differ, but because Arabic is taken from sources, and this is one of the miracles of Islam, is that each of the sciences of Islam, in the early period of Islam, all of these incredible people emerged to preserve these sciences. Where did they come from? Where did you get something like Sibawi? Or Al-Asma'i, who just went around collecting Poetry everywhere. Where did you get these people? Where did their himma come from to do these things? What inspired them to spend years? What inspired somebody to travel all over the Muslim world to collect hadith, to go months on a journey to hear one hadith because he heard so-and-so had a higher chain? What inspired them? It's, it's one of the miracles of Islam as far as I can tell. So... When 
the Quran, if it's agreed upon, there's no debate about the Quran. There are seven variants. There's, there's, then you have the three, the three to ten. And then you have the Ahad. You go up to 14. And then you have Shudud. Agreed upon. So we've always recognized uh, that there's alternate Qiraat out there. Nobody's ever denied that. Atlantic Monthly is not going to teach us anything about our religion that we didn't already know. We're not going to be a big shock to find out, oh, there's other recensions out there that don't jibe with the one that they recite from. Well, how is it 1.3 billion people recite from the same one? I mean, isn't that a little odd? Right? Isn't that a little strange? In fact, Imam al-Qurtabi in his tafsir says that in, in the Quran, that we have revealed this Quran and we have taken upon ourselves, God, the royal we, to preserve the Quran. Imam al-Qurtubi in his tafsir says that there was a, a Jewish man in Andalusia who wanted to see who had the truth. And he was a calligrapher. So he calligraphed a Torah and he put a lot of mistakes in it. And he took it to a rabbi. And it was a beautiful calligraphed Hebrew Torah. And the rabbi read it. And he said, are there, are there, how is it? He said, it's beautiful. It's the, one of the finest editions of the Torah I've ever seen. And he said, okay, thank you. And then he did the Bible. He took it to a Christian uh, priest. And he read it. And he said, what did you think? He said, beautiful. Excellent Bible. He said, no nothing, he said, no, it was wonderful. Then he did the Quran, he took it to an imam, and the imam told him, you have to burn this. He said, why? He said, it's filled with mistakes. I don't care how nice the calligraphy is. And he knew then that these people had a preserved book. Imam Qurtubi mentions that. That's from Isnad. So when you study the Quran, you're studying a book that was preserved. There's no doubt about it. We can differ on some of the point, stops, you know, the, the waqfat, they differ on those things. Those, those are all... But the, it, the Quran is the same. It's the same. There's some differences about ayahs, about what's an ayah and what's not, where the ayah ends. Those are all insignificant differences. But the text is, not only is the text preserved, the Uthmani Rasam is preserved. And in Mauritania, you're not a Hafid if you don't know how to recite, re, write the entire Quran according to the Rasam Uthmani from scratch. You, you have to be able to sit in a room with paper and, and, and pen and be able to write the whole Quran out without any mistakes or else they don't give you the Isnad. Mauritania has one of the most difficult... They're, they're, they're easier on the tajweed because they tend to... The tajweed, you have lahan khafi and lahan jali. In tajweed, you have, you have a, a lahan, a mistakes of pronunciation that are a result of, of uh, grammar. And, th and that's, that's jali. If you make those mistakes, it's haram. The khafi is mistakes in the, like idgham. There's an idram there because the huruf al idram yarmalun, the wow there is there, you get the tanween, so it should go assimilate. If you don't do that, if you say sirajan wahaja and you do an idhar, that's khafi. And so the later ulama tended to be easier on that. 
than than the uh, the the earlier. But now, if you go like Syria or some uh, Egypt, where they where they have a very strong tradition of tajweed, they're very strict on those things. But if you go to North Africa, they're not as strict. There's also a hadith indicating that's one of the signs of the end of time that Muslims would be obsessed with tajweed and they would forget the hudud of the Quran. They would learn the huruf, but but have no not. He said, "You don't know the huruf, but you know the hudud." He said, "But the time is coming when they'll know the huruf, but they won't know the hudud. Right? They won't have fiqh of the Quran, understanding of the Quran." So the the senad. Uh, uh, Abdullah ibn al-Mubarak, one of the great muhaddithin, he was a student of Imam Malik, he was from Khurasan, uh, and he was a mujahid, very well known. He said, one of his students, Abdan, said that I heard him, they were talking about the zanadiqa, about heretics in Islam. And Abdullah ibn al-Mubarak said, إِنَّ الْإِسْنَادَ عِنْدِي مِنَ الدِّينِ Isnad, as far as I'm concerned, is from the religion. It's part of the religion. And had it not been for the isnad, whoever wanted to say something would simply just say it. And then he said, but as long as somebody says, where, where did you get that from? And he said, حدثني فلان بقي الدين. As long as somebody makes a statement in the religion, and you can say, where's that statement from? And he can tell you, he said, the religion's safe. But once you lose that, another one of the early Salaf said, the Habuddin be the Habas Senad. This religion will, will go when the Senad goes. The religion goes when the Senad goes. Now, in the early period, because the Hadith, there were a lot of people putting Hadith down that were not hadith. These are called mawdu'at. And it's from the fakhr of the women. Our muhaddithun mentioned that never in the history of Islam was any woman noted for fabricating hadith. This is one of the mafkhara of the nisa, because many of the women were hadith transmitters. There's no woman who lied on the Prophet We have no recording of any woman that told a lie and invented a hadith. But many of the men invented hadith. They made up hadith. Sometimes with good intentions, believe it or not, even though the hadith says, and it's a mutawatir hadith, this hadith. Whoever lies concerning something I said, let him take his seat in hell. That's how serious it is. But we do have some ulama, uh, historically, that would, uh, maybe they heard something and they would just put it down. And sometimes, because they thought the hadith was true, they would add a senad. There's people that do that, tadlis and, and wada'. But Qadayyad mentions a hadith about one, one of the setup said, I prayed behind the four caliphs, and they all put their hands at the side. Qadayyad says, we don't need this to defend the Maliki position. You know, that his intention might have been good, but this is haram. And one of the proofs for me that the hadiths are true is that why didn't the Ahl-Sunnah put down, if they made up all these hadiths, why didn't they put down hadiths to defend positions like Khalq al-Qur'an? When the big fitna came, why didn't they just invent hadiths about the Qur'an? And so these arguments that somehow people made, Abi Bakr makes up the hadith about Aisha and, and the dogs barking at Hawla, just making it up. 
It's rubbish. Sahaba didn't make up hadith. Does that mean every hadith in al-Bukhari is absolutely 100% true? No. There are many probabilistic hadith in al-Bukhari. There are, according to even some of the ulama, there are hadith that shouldn't be in there. Um, uh, John, Jonathan Brown wrote a very serious study of the canonization of al-Bukhari because there were there are many uh, criticisms of uh, Bukhari early on, but later it becomes almost sacrosanct, impossible to... And al-Bukhari undeniably had divine guidance, and I mean, we believe that, I believe that about him. He, he had dreams, he saw the Prophet in dreams. Um, his memory was beyond belief, really, beyond belief. And, and the, the only reason I do believe it is because I've met, uh, the Mauritanians still have people that have these type of memories, because I met people, I, I met uh, people. I met a man in Mauritania that memorized the entire Qamis al-Muhiq of Fairuz Abadi by rote. He could quote any word, tell you what page it was on, and give you a complete. Just start it and like <laughs> give you the whole thing, and that's like thousands of pages. Just rote memorization. So people people had much better memories than they do now. So anyway. I wanted to, uh, Isnad in Arabic, by the way, means Sanada Yasnudu. It's a Fathu Dhamman, for those who were in my class the other day. Uh, isnad means to, um, a, a pillow is called a Masnad, because you lean on it. So the Sanad is something you support yourself with. Yastanidu ala shay, or Yastanidu ilayhi, right? To depend on something. So the isnad is something you depend on. It's also called a silsila, which is why we call this program Living Links, because the idea is that in each generation you become a link in the chain. So you learn it from somebody who learned it from somebody back to the Prophet or depending on the science, back to whatever science it was. So, for instance, uh, the Ajurumiya, right, is, is a book of grammar and and you can go back um, to Ibn Ajurum with the Senate. So if you study it in that chain. Now, obviously, once these sciences were preserved, then the ulama became more lax on the idea of the Senate. So with hadith, obviously, the books have been preserved, and we don't have the type of memories anymore. But you still need critical editions, uh, and the computer age is, is very dangerous because things can be changed. I'll give you an example. I have a tafsir of the Jalalain, and there is a, a paragraph in there that criticizes uh, a certain group uh, in, in, uh, on the Arabian Peninsula uh, as being heretics. And that's that group, um, because there's a lot of money, um, they ended up buying a lot of the publishing houses. So in the new editions, that paragraph's completely taken out. But I have the original edition. So people don't realize that we're losing. I actually have a, and Tarif uh, al-Arabi's here with me. Years ago, we were reading the Sharh of Imam al-Nawawi. And he had an edition from uh, Lebanon. And we were reading it, and 
But you here, you saw this. And, and when I studied it, I remembered there was, a, he said that, uh, you don't truly believe until you love for your brother what you love for yourself. And in his edition, it didn't mention that this included the Jews and the Christians. It just got taken out. And I said, you know, I, that's not the way I learned it. And we looked at other editions, and there it was. Imam Noe mentions Jews and Christians as being your brothers. But because there's people in, in that region of the world that don't want people to think of Jews as brothers, <laughs> right? They just eliminated that. So we have to be very careful. There's also people changing Abwab. There's a chapter, uh, an edition of the Riyadh al-Sadihin, which has Bab Ziyarat Qabr al-Nabi the chapter of visiting the grave of the Prophet. They took grave out and put masjid because they don't like the idea of visiting the grave of the Prophet. So this is khiyanatun this is, naqal. Uh, That's what our ulama call it, being treacherous in how you transmit. And one of the things the Prophet ﷺ is reported to have said I mean, it's a morsal in its sahih transmission, but the meaning is sound and our ulama transmitted. Imam al-Bayhaqi, Ahmed and others. Ahmed goes first, Imam Ahmed, and then Imam al-Bayhaqi and others transmit this. It has a lot of turuq. But the Prophet ﷺ was reported to have said, يَحْمِرُوا هَذَا الدِّينَ مِنْ كُلِّ خَلَفٍ عُدُولُهُ That this religion will be carried in each generation by... Khalaf are good people that come after. Khalf is negative. If it has taskeen over the ayn letter, it's negative. With a sukun. If it has khalaf with a bounce, the fatha, then it's, it's good. Um, they're good people. So the Prophet ﷺ said good people would carry this religion from every generation uh, who were upright, just people. Yanfuna anhu, they would uh, get rid of the. the Yanfuna anhu tahrif al ghalin the decontextualization of extremists, taking things out of context. They will negate that. So when they hear somebody quoting a verse, they'll say that's out of context. And the plagiarisms of people trying to undermine the religion. And the interpretations of ignorant people. So that's the role of the ulama. So... Um, you know, just as an example, this is one of my athbats from my teacher, uh, Sheikh Ahmed Gibran, uh, who's also a teacher of Sheikh Abdullah al-Qadi. He was a student of Yasin al-Fadani. He's one of the last really muhaddithun uh, in, in Mecca. And we used to visit him whenever we went to Mecca and read with him. But um, these are his, these are called athbat. So these are his athbat. And this is uh, back to his teacher. So, so with the Johara, Johara Tawheed, which was written by uh, Imam Al-Laqqani, great Maliki Azhari scholar, and it was taught in Al-Azhar, uh, it still is, um, that this is, he relates it, uh, Sheikh Ahmed Jabir um, relates it from Yasin Al-Fadani, uh, who was called Muhaddith Al-Haramain, he relates it from Imam al-Mahrasi, who relates it from Ahmed bin Shams al-Shinqiqi, Thumman Madani, so he went from Mauritania to Medina, 
who relates it from Mustafa bin Fadl bin Mamin al-Shinqiti al-Maliki, an Abdullah ibn Ibrahim al-Aliwi al-Maliki, an Muhammad bin al-Hassan al-Bannani, great Moroccan scholar, an Abi Abdullah Muhammad bin Abdul Salam al-Bannani al-Fasi from Morocco, Fas, an Muhammad al-Salmuni, an Abdul Baqi bin Yusuf bin Ahmed al-Zarqani, a great Maliki scholar. Uh, in Egypt, Anil-Nur, Abu al-Hassan Ali Muhammad bin Abdul Rahman al-Ajhuri, one of the students of uh, Ibrahim al-Laqani, great Maliki scholar, Imam al-Ajhuri. Anil-Mu'allaf al-Burhan Ibrahim bin Harun al-Laqani al-Maliki. So there's a chain to Imam al-Laqani in the Johara, just to give you an example. And so you study it with a teacher. This is another, uh, this is a ijaza, this is like a diploma that is from another one of my teachers who actually wrote a commentary on the Johara, a, a very large commentary on it. And this is his, uh, this is his ijaza to me. And then they, they date it with witnesses. So that you don't say, oh, I got from so-and-so once he dies, right? People, may Allah give him a long life. Um, but, and he put the jubba on me as well, which is a sunnah. So that's like a graduation. This was actually his jubba. So I wore it today for that reason. So uh, in conclusion, what I want to... Uh, read from very quickly is Imam Raghab al-Isfahani who died in uh, 502. He's one of the teachers by books of Imam al-Ghazali. Imam al-Ghazali memorized this book. Uh, it's the foundation of his ethical theory. It's a, a beautiful book on ethics. He says in here, لا شيء أوجب على سلطان من مراعات المصدين للرياسة بالعلم there is nothing more important for government than to have some type of quality assurance for who becomes leaders in knowledge. Because when knowledge becomes confused, evil becomes widespread. And you will see evil people multiply. And you will see mutual animosity and hatred begin to emerge amongst the hearts of people. The reason for that is because political leadership, leadership is of four types. Al-Anbiya. The first is the prophets. In Sahih Bukhari, the Bani Israq, they Yasusuhum. It said that they used to lead them. Siyasa means to lead. And, and the root comes from training a horse because people have an animal nafs. And so the sasa are the ones that are supposed to help them to learn to control their animal nafs. Right? Until they become human beings. That's why you have law functions when people are human beings. You don't need, the policemen are there just to make sure the odd character that's not behaving like a human being, he deals with him. 
But generally, in a, in a civil society where people are educated and human beings, the police have very little to do. Right? But when people are, are, are behaving like animals, and obviously social circumstances create animals, right? People say, oh, that's just their nature. No, you take a monkey and you put a monkey in a cage that's very small with other monkeys, they'll start killing each other. Humans are, their animal nature is not different in that way. If you put people in very unhealthy circumstances, they will begin to behave in a different way that it's their fitra or nature. You change those circumstances and their nature will flourish. People are not aggressive by nature. This whole idea that humans are aggressive by nature, most of you have never even been in a fight in your lives, except when you were little kids. Right? You walk around, people aren't aggressive, but you step on their toes, they'll get aggressive. You, know, you run somebody off on the road, he's going to get angry, and if he's not well, he might get really angry and try to shoot you. But if you don't bother him, generally he's not going to bother you. You, know, you go to Palestine and you take people's land, yeah, they're going to get angry. You know, somebody comes into your house, moves you out, moves all your furniture out, puts you on the front lawn, and then if you start lobbing rocks through the windows, and they're like, what's wrong with those people out there? A bunch of animals. <laughs> Does that make any sense? Yeah, they're going to be upset. You know, you change the property line on your neighbor, see how neighborly he is. Tear down his fence and, and extend your property maybe 10 feet into his. Suddenly that smiles off his face. He's not waving, good morning, Bob, how are you? You know, he might be loading up his uh, 12 gauge. Right? And then the police come, well, it's an unfortunate situation, you know, but the guy probably shouldn't have extended his fence into the, right? I mean, they can understand when a guy loses it in those situations. They used to have in this country marriages, uh, uh, crimes of passion. Somebody came in, found the spouse with another person in their bed, and they lost it and killed them both or something like that. People got off for that. Right? Now they don't because there's no more gheira. The gheira the, the is gone. So it's like, oh, okay, you're with Bob now. That's all right. I'll see you later. Yeah. But that's the way it used to be. So the first are the prophets. وَحُكْمُهُمْ عَلَى الْخَاصَةِ and their authority is over the elect and the common people. What does that mean, khasa and amma? The khasa are the notables. Every society has people through education, through wealth, through accomplishment, through achievement. They enter into the nukhba. And this idea of total egalitarianism is just rubbish. It's a lie. It's never been true. It will never be true. It's just a simple lie. We live in a hierarchical world. It is the nature of the world. The thing, the challenge is spiritually not to hold people below you in contempt. I mean below you, not spiritually, because they might be above you spiritually. This is one of the, the paradoxes of this reality, is the illiterate street sweeper could be closer to God than the PhD doctor who discovered a cure for cancer. We don't know that, and that's why you don't hold people in contempt. But the idea that there are not, no, there are butlers in the White House. Right? And this is the way the world works, and every society has this. The communists tried to create an egalitarian society. They just created the same uh, monstrosity. 
Right? They had their elite that had their caviar and vodka when everybody else wasn't you know, eating very well. So it's always like that. Just read Animal Farm. It's a whole story's in there, right? George Orwell, the pigs. All animals are created equal, but some are more equal than others, right? That was a little addendum added in later. So, vahidihim wabatinim. So the, the prophets have control over the inward, authority over the inward and the outward. Wadwulats, and then the political rulers. Their authority is on the outward of the elect and the common people, but not their inward. So they have control over our outward. They can tell us you have to pay taxes, but they can't make us like it. Because that's your inward. But if a prophet tells you to pay zakat and you don't like it, your iman, if you're paying it, but you're angry about it, your iman is something's wrong with it. Because you should be happy to do that. Because he has authority over your internal states as well. And then he says, Now he means like the ulama, the people that know how to apply the sacred law in its circumstances. These are the, the arifun billah. These are the, the, you know, Plato would have called them the philosophers. He uses the word hukama which Hakim is the wise one, so the sages. And then there's the sages. Their authority is over the internal states of the elect, spiritually elect, because you can have political elect. See, you can have an illiterate person who's from the khasa. This is one of the secrets of our religion. Election is not limited to the outward meanings. You can have the, the khasa that are the elect of God, and they're over everybody. And, and it can be an illiterate person, like Sidi Abd al-Aziz al-Dabbagh, somebody like that. You know, that's, and that's why I don't hold people in contempt, because you don't know who they are with God. You just don't know. Don't have contempt for people. Respect them. But also acknowledge the hierarchy that people, that we are supposed to have the decorum of respecting age. Age has rights over us. If somebody's older than you, you don't treat them like you're, hey, buddy, slap them on the back. If he's got gray hairs and you're a young kid, that's not appropriate behavior. Right? The Prophet said, he is not among us who does not respect the aged or have compassion on the youth. So the old have to have compassion on the young when they see them slipping, when they see, oh, I remember I used to do that. Not get in that, you know, you get these kind of 50, 60-year-old men who had terrible use but then they become very pious and suddenly they're wagging their fingers at everybody, forgetting what they were like when they were 20. Right? This kind of uh, sanctimonious piety. And, and, and then he says, And then there's the preachers. And we could add to these people the newscasters, the propagandists, the op-ed writers, all those type people. And they have control over the internal states of the common people. And that, that's why they're the most dangerous. The wa'al. If you want to rectify the world, it's to ensure the quality of these four and how it relates to the masses. In order for the, the, the amma 
to fulfill their function towards the, the khasa and in order for the elect to fulfill their function towards the amma. We all have a purpose. And the corruption of the world happens when it's turned upside down. When the who comes forward to teach wisdom and to preach was not guarded and the quality of those people was not guarded, a group of people elected themselves to take leadership in knowledge without having the requisite ability. And because of their ignorance, they innovated in the religion and they deluded the common people. And they also benefited, because people get worldly benefit, and also leadership, jah, being in a position of power. And they found from the common people help because of the relationship, because they're really, they're not refined people. They're not elect spiritually. And so the people that are, are, and again, you can have spiritually, you can have people in the highest positions that are the lowest of the low. They're amma, spiritually. They might be khasa in their dhahir, but they're amma in their batan. And then you have people that are amma, they're, they're from the common people in their outward, but they're from the khasa in their inward. So you, you can't see this in black and white terms. It's a very sophisticated way of viewing the world. Every birds of a feather flock together. Like the dung beetle who likes to hang out with the scorpion. And then they opened doors that were closed. And they, they removed curtains that had been hanging. And they sought the rank and stature of the elect. So they achieved these positions in utter shamelessness. And because they were evil, they, they claimed the real ulama were innovators. And they made takfir of them. Rapaciously stealing their authority. They deluded their followers. They, they deluded their followers to the point where they even stepped on these scholars with their feet. And this happened many times in our history. Imam uh, Tabarani, he was, was uh, stomped to death in a masjid by these ghoga. They, they, Imam Tabari, they attacked his house. The ghoga of the Hanabira, in, it's mentioned in his, uh, he mentions it in his history. They literally attacked his house. And, and because of all of this, Great destruction is, is, 
is given birth to and oppression becomes widespread. Alhamdulillah. Subhanakallah, alhamdulillah, shadu an la ilaha illa anta astaghfirullah wa tukwilaikum.